Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, here with you, licensed marriage and family therapist. And so I want to give everybody the classic reminder that this podcast is used for education and entertainment purposes. It does not count as a session with a licensed professional. Please seek out a professional in your area to work on your unique issues. So... For today's episode, which I'll be frank, you're we're recording this now at the beginning of December, as you're going to hear this in February, as part of our as part of my Black History, Black Excellent, Black Excellence Month, and I'm bringing you one of my colleagues, uh, who is also a therapist here, and but also a businesswoman. And as I've always said with this podcast, this is a lot about you're learning about me also through the intersections I live. And one of those intersections I live with is the fact that I run a business. I run my practice and I'm in private practice. So I wanted to talk with another black therapist about what does it mean to deal with being in business as opposed to us working in an agency. And one of those people that came to mind was our guest today, Carla A. Brown or Carla Amanda Brown. So let's bring her, go ahead, bring her in and let me tell you a little more about Carla. Carla Amanda Brown is a licensed marriage and family therapist, is the founder and CEO of Soul-Centric Counseling Centers, as well as Soul-Centric Collective, a platform dedicated to increasing access to and belonging for all in group psychotherapy spaces. As an African-American Silicon Valley CEO, Carla leads with a unifying philosophy of diversity, equity, and inclusion, along with overall mindfulness and respect to empower and enhance the qualities of life for all clinicians and those who seek services. Carla is also committed to creating a legacy that will provide opportunities for vast underrepresented BIPOC community members to become esteemed psychotherapists, business owners, and community leaders through mentoring, training, and workforce development. Headquartered in the heart of technology, innovation, and disruption, as well as one of the world's largest economy, the Silicon Valley region is also filled with systematic occasions of micro, mesio, and macro aggressions, racism, and rampant inequality, which was created, which has created a profound generational wealth gap. Under Carla's re- leadership, soul-centric counseling works with parent patients to find or create supportive ecosystems oriented towards safety, liberation, psychology, and financial wealth. So, welcome to Untying Knots, Carla. Oh, thank you, Perry, and hello, everyone who's listening. Well, and welcome to this experience, and looking forward to sharing what you can share for us, especially about the business side of all of this. But as I always ask everybody, so how did you kind of get here? Oh, it was, it's been a windy journey. Mm-hmm. And I actually don't even still feel like I'm here. I'm mm-hmm. moving and get to take a pit stop but life continues to deliver sweet things and sour things to me and to to us I believe and so I'd say I'm very much still on my journey Mm -hmm. 
as it relates to being a business owner, some of the pieces that um, have been really important and fundamental in my in my growth, um, I can talk about. And the first being at 20, I had the opportunity to work for two licensed clinical social workers in private practice. I was their assistant for over five and a half years. And that really gave me a leg up as it related to understanding marketing and how to treat patients and the back end of business, such as paying taxes and Mm -hmm. uh, various things that my family couldn't teach me because they weren't in business for themselves and Mm -hmm. didn't um, particularly express that sort of aspiration for themselves. Um, And so I really got to learn what like how to run a therapy business kind of before I really even knew what therapy was. Mm-hmm. And at the that point at 20, I was still an undergrad. I wasn't interested in being a therapist. I really wanted to be a medical doctor. And though being surrounded by my employers and the other people in the building and and such, um, and then having some people tell me things like, Carla, you're a good listener, or you're good at this. Are you sure you don't want to be a therapist too? And things of that nature got me to thinking. So I then went to school um, to get my master's degree in counseling psychology. I still didn't want to be a therapist then. (laughs) I remember my cohort at the end of our time together, I got an award for the person who was the least likely to be a therapist. Hmm. It was hilarious and so accurate. It was just, it wasn't what I wanted. I went to school thinking that I could read books and attend lectures and be a better person. But what I quickly learned that it was in the practice of be being, becoming a psychotherapist that helped me to learn about myself, helped me to Mm. have increased contact with not only my patients, but supervisors, colleagues, et cetera. Um, That allowed me to reflect more on me and reflect more on uh, humans and on our world. Um, So, so, so I got that lesson, but even then, I still mm-hmm. didn't want to be a therapist. <laughs> I well, move. Yeah, because I mean, there's also still the connotations too that come up with the idea of being a therapist, which not everyone properly understands what we do. Because I mean, yeah, that's one of those struggles we have with what do you do? Just sit and listen to people all day and talk about their woes and all that versus some of the other joys we see with this. Oh, so many joys, so many joys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd love to talk about the joys that, that we get to experience as, as clinicians and as business owners. Um, but one of the joys, which mm-hmm. thinking about my journey is that this field is so vast and that 
folks get to enter at different stages of life. So mm-hmm. I went to school, practiced as a therapist, still didn't like hadn't drank the Kool-Aid. And so I moved from Sacramento to this uh, Bay Area. And when I got here, was thinking about becoming a programmer and mm-hmm. started going to school and learning how to program. And that was well and good and was fun. Lots of late nights. And I learned how to like dream and code. I guess it's not really learning. It just happened. But mm-hmm. dream and code and like joke and code. And and it was fun. But I, I realized it was too left-brained for me. It was mm-hmm. just farther over than than I really wanted. And with that learning, coupled with um, the murders of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling mm-hmm. helped me to then pivot back to being a clinician and recognizing how special I am, how important me as a Black clinician is um in in our time and and also in the space in which we live i i um in the silicon valley i can go i I can go a whole day without seeing another black person (laughs) yeah very true it doesn't mean that we're not around uh that we're non-existent but we we're definitely not um as populous as in some areas. And after I got outside of myself to see more of the world, I could see my some importance that I have and in, in ways that I could contribute um, to people's lives. Very nice. Very nice. And exactly part of why it's good for us to be able to hear that, especially for any of those both, if they're 20, to those that are in their 60s who decided they want to go back to school and they want to still be out here doing something. Becoming a therapist is something there and that we need in our community. But we also hit that other place that we also set where even though we want to learn to become a psychotherapist, it doesn't necessarily teach us about running a business. Not at all. Not at all. And there is another place where we as the, find ourselves also underrepresented in the business side of this. Absolutely. And I have found that people get stuck in jobs where there are nice pensions and re- retirement accounts and great benefits um mm-hmm. largely county state hospital jobs mm-hmm. um school districts that um some pay better than others absolutely um and there's this nice cushion that mm-hmm. people get around them and that's great for some people like mm-hmm. some people that is like where they thrive where they need to be like perfect for me with my entrepreneurial spirit and like i said learn having learned how to run the business before i even knew what therapy really was um i just knew that there was more and mm-hmm. i don't really like to be told what to do so <laughs> 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 there 
there was there was really no other option. I had to figure it out somehow. I and at the time I got licensed in 2017, um, and almost exactly December 2017, um, I absolutely hated that position that I had, and. Um, so I got licensed and applied for a bunch of insurance panels. I was like, I don't entirely know how this is going to pan out. I know I'm going to have to pay taxes mm-hmm. at some point, but I will figure it out later. And once I took just two months for me to feel like I could make the transition and I gave my job a four day notice because I hated it so much. <laughs> and. I was out of there. I think that's also around the time we met, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, because right. I think I, I, hadn't, I hadn't passed my licensing exam yet, and I was working on it and trying to build my connections for moving out beyond the agency that I had been uh, working, at, working at. So, yeah, I eh, very much get that. Yeah. And But you bring up a very interesting point, and I, this is not the first time I've heard Someone talk about the aspect of, for us as a people coming into this field, the idea of staying in the agency, staying in the county physicians for that cushion mm-hmm. means that we're also not necessarily able to be in these other places as well, because it doesn't fit what the county is doing. It doesn't fit what the agency is doing. It doesn't fit what the uh, school doing when there are other modalities that work for us, too. Right. It's it's incredibly limiting. And then it only leads to serving particular populations of folks mm. who mm. need those um, services from uh, public companies. Mm. Whereas. Which also is not a bad thing, but. Thank you. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. Thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> to people in those positions and who thrive in those positions. And there are a bunch of other folk who have many other needs mm-hmm. and lots of people who have the ability to pay for those services um, outright or have insurance that will support them with getting the more personalized, tailored services that they need mm-hmm. for their various concerns, whether it's relationship counseling or sex therapy or um, harm reduction therapy. Like maybe someone's not interested in abstaining completely from drugs and alcohol, Mm -hmm. Um, but many publicly funded sort of programs and such lean towards that way. So mm-hmm. in private practice, it really offers freedom to the clinician and freedom to the person seeking services to get what they want, how they want. And especially if we're not following the idea that the manual that's being used by these agencies or so forth is fitting and culturally appropriate for our client. Because I think that's one of those big things that we don't that doesn't get often talked about is the aspect of how is the trend, the treatment also being culturally specific. Because as I read in your bio, we're talking about the macro, the meso, the aggressions, which unwittingly got put into our therapy as well. 
Oh, that's like another podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. But that, yeah, but that's also one of the advantages we get by having our own practices because we get to address it. We do. We do. We get to address it. And and one of the things that shows up for folks that um, that I talk to who are newly licensed and um, is that they want to work somewhere where um, like consultation is built in. Like they want to go to this place where there's already a team of folks. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. But also what gets to happen when moving into private practice is that you get to create your own team. I got Mm -hmm. to create my own team. I have more consultants than I can count. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, we don't all work. Our money doesn't come from the same place, but we get to exchange ideas and continue Mm -hmm. to be connected with each other. And then in that way, I get exactly what I want rather than what this workplace has provided for me Mm, which is one of those other joys so let's talk a little bit about what you have built the soul-centric collective yeah that's one of my babies soul-centric collective is um a project i've been working on for over a decade and it came out of my struggle to find group therapy I was in school to be a therapist, worked in a building full of therapists. My direct employers were big group therapists. And yet I was having trouble finding therapy. So just for those who are not familiar, could you give us a quick definition of what group therapy is and how this fits into the what your what the collective is? Yeah, so group therapy, I I guess I want to broaden it out just a Mm. bit for a moment, um, which is why it's called Soul Centric Collective. And emphasis here on collective and people coming together for a common goal to heal in a particular way or to heal from a particular affliction that they've got. And that can be done in a variety of ways. It can be done through therapy, through coaching, through a conscious cannabis circle. Like there are various Mm -hmm. ways that that can happen. So group therapy is the application of psychotherapy to typically a group of strangers, but it could also be a family group um, or people maybe... Um, who know one another and have been grieving in a particular way. So to come together and to have a facilitated experience. I want to make a footnote that these examples are very limited as it Mm. relates to the various ways that collective healing can occur. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're also a group therapist, Perry. How how would you describe group therapy? Oh, well, I'm probably not doing so much therapy per se, but I'm doing a lot of psychoeducation because I am running a grief group at the particular moment, um, which has just been encouraging people to talk about what they're feeling uh, in the moment. But I've also managed to relate it back to a lot of also some things that are cultural within ourselves, such as music, art, creativity, 
not just the idea of sitting in grief and doing nothing and just having it overtake you. So occasionally I get into that. I just not all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm appreciating you adding how how much there can be to Mm -hmm. what happens when we come together, ultimately helping people to connect with themselves and with another in a particular moment in time. Mm -hmm. So how is the soul collective, especially here being in the Silicon Valley, an area of creation synergy, but also the expression of your blackness? It's a beautiful question. Um, I think a little bit less about my blackness and more about my love for people Mm. and the sadness that I feel that it's hard for us to come together and to connect. And it was just, um, I, I, Right now, as I'm talking, I just got a flash of of churches in my head mm-hmm. and how important church is very much in many communities and largely in Black communities um, where people come together and move beyond their pain. Mm-hmm. And so group therapy gets to be that as well. And largely in... Eurocentric spaces, there's all of this individualism, not that I as a Black person am immune from that. I swim in those waters too, um, but I don't want to. And it it can get so lonely and isolating and painful. And so I really wanted to know that I wasn't alone with what I was experiencing. And I want other people to know that as well. And with the way in which managed healthcare organizations have come in and really dictated how things should go and how to count and measure uh, very much a white supremacist way of going about um, the work of healing. It's, it's really robbed the field of more relational approaches and mm-hmm. options. One of those being group therapy. Mm-hmm. I watched a video with Irving Yalom some time ago, and um, Irving Yalom is a major group therapist, and um, he was a Stanford psychiatrist, I believe. And in the video, he said something like, we used to run we used to run 30 groups a week. Now you'd be lucky to find 30 groups throughout the state or something of that nature, just mm-hmm. really pointing to the drastic decline in uh, collective communal healing, i.e. Mm-hmm. group therapy. And mm-hmm. I happen to be one who got exposed to good group early on in my career. And as a, as a sibling, one of four, like, I mm. think it just made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, I won't name the organization, but I had someone else telling me that the way they have done groups at this organization, which is a major HMO, um, 
it's more psychoeducation. So you've got essentially 50 people on a Zoom call, as opposed to, let's say, 10 people. They're actually in the process of interrelating to each other compared to this Zoom call where it's basically someone lecturing. So how is this a group? It's just, it's like group in all, uh, is it really a group in, or is it just an idea of a group? I have all sorts of thoughts and expressions running through my head. But I will say that that's really unfortunate. And, uh, And there's a part of me that gets angry by it. Because mm-hmm. group therapy then gets put on that experience. And that's what people are thinking group therapy is when mm-hmm. it can also be a group of six to eight people on a Zoom call or in person or hybrid. <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of fun stuff going on these days. And where everyone gets a chance to have their voice heard Mm -hmm. and to have it heard in a meaningful way Mm -hmm. where tears are not shunned, where the therapist may speak very little because it's really an opportunity for the participants to connect and to really get to know one another and build intimate relationships with other folks who also want that. Um, Because largely there are people in the rest of their lives that probably don't want that or don't know that they want it, uh, just Mm -hmm. really aren't available to connect so closely. So, and there are a bunch of ways that group gets to work. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not limited to that. But a Zoom call of 50 people and like just the therapist is talking. No, that's not that's not group therapy. It's a class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a class where there's some again psychoeducation being offered, but I have a hard time using group therapy with that sort of layout and especially if someone needs more fine tuning how are you going to do that when there's trying to get through this lesson plan so to speak as opposed to okay so it's not working this way have we can we try a little of this can we try a little of that no it's like we need to make this as blanket across everybody when it's the place where I think it's forgotten that universality is nice, but it it, it also has limits. For sure. Mm-hmm. And as you said, helping people find that connection even in the space is another of the joys. It really is. It really is. All right. So I think that's a perfect place for us to take a break. So stay tuned, folks, for our second half here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage family therapist, here with Carla A. Brown, also licensed marriage and family therapist. We'll be back shortly. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it. 
so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. This is Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with you. And I'm with Carla Amanda Brown, also licensed marriage and family therapist and owner and operator of the Soul Centric Collective and the Soul Centric Collective Therapy as well. Welcome back, Carla. Thank you, Perry. So one of those things that, and this is a conversation we briefly had when we last saw each other, and I had just come out of another uh, just sort of support group for therapists and especially therapists of color. And one of the members there who was an associate and was looking at whether or not she was, she was at a group practice and was debating that question of going into her own practice as a private practice. And one of the things she said was, well, to be in business for yourself, you have to dehumanize yourself. And it's like, whoa, whoa what are you talking about dehumanizing yourself? And we led into that discussion. So I'm curious because I know what I went through to start my practice, but I'm kind of curious, what are your thoughts, things, and suggestions for folks about starting their own private practice as therapists or as social workers, basically as healers? It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the first thing. And I say that not with wanting to stop anyone from taking this route but it's just it's a lot of work and it's a lot of doing things that we didn't enter the field to do like I didn't enter the field to do billing and to write invoices and all the other things that come along with um with marketing myself and things of that nature was not my intention at all. So it also requires a lot of compassion for us to, or I'll speak for myself. It has required me to be very forgiving and compassionate with myself when I make a mistake or miss an opportunity or just don't know where to turn i've had to learn to start asking questions and Mm. making my ignorance known which i have parts of me that don't feel comfortable with that but it's been important because my practice is important it's important to me and my livelihood and the parts of me that wanted practice the way that I want to practice and also obviously important to my patients. So I don't know what happened with that person who feels like going into practice for oneself is dehumanizing. I'm happy you're there to get curious and and to perhaps help them to see things differently. 
Um, but I, I can also think that there's a lot around capitalism. Mm-hmm. And being in business does, at least from the way that I understand what it means to be in business, does require some amount of counting and measuring and making sure that there's things put in place that are going to allow me to continue to live and allow me to continue to serve in a way that doesn't lead me towards regret or um, that wasn't the word I was looking for. But regret sort of feels (laughs) maybe the most apt and most appropriate for that moment, because I think there's also, just as we talked about the idea that by doing private practice, we get to do the stuff our way. We get to retune to what we, what our people need, what our clients need. The same thing can happen in business. Just because we learn those principles doesn't mean we have to use every single one of them. I mean, as long as it keeps us out of legal trouble, we'll say that, but does not mean we have to be using that system and importing it into what makes it work for us to do therapy. Yeah, we, we get to choose. That's that's one of the best pieces. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I think about for people coming into the field is I've had a few conversations with folks lately, and there's the idea that they need to know, like, today, who they're going to serve for the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. I have changed my target person or persons many times in the last five years. Mm-hmm. It has shifted from folks who have experienced domestic violence to only children to only adults to <clears throat> couples and groups. And it it's just varied along the way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's largely been as I learn and grow as a human, then my practice gets to shift with me. And mm-hmm. that doesn't get to happen when mm-hmm. you're working for an agency or an institution that only serves a very small uh, particular population. Right. Which is also one of the ways that it can help you avoid burnout. Oh, yeah. Because especially if you're going to be doing this 30 years, there's only so many cases of a certain type that you can see before, let's be frank, you start burning out and becoming desensitized to it. And this work includes our sense of compassion, which you don't want that compassion turning into contempt if you can help it. Yeah. And as a Pisces, I get bored fast. So do I. So do I. I'm Pisces <laughs> also. So look at us. <laughs> exactly. So with that being said, let's go ahead and move into our next section, which is myths and realities. So what do you think is one of the myths about mental health that we can talk about what the reality is? Even though we talked about a number of realities in this. Very recently. I had someone say, a new patient say to me, 
I thought that I was that the therapist it was something like I thought that the therapist was going to judge me but it was not that like I'm concerned about being judged like that being in the air but as if that was the therapist's job to be judgmental mm-hmm. and that was really fascinating to me and I've had someone else pretty recently like say something similar not not quite as clear but something similar around like that that's that's what we do like like in the job description like to judge so that if if that's what i thought was supposed to be happening in therapy then i wouldn't go either <laughs> mhm i mean does it sound like it sounds like someone had put this in their job description and even then, it sounds like this would have been what we were talking about with the agencies. I, I don't I don't know how they got that idea. Maybe I wasn't curious enough in the moment, but it was it was jarring to me, and again, helped me to understand how important it is that we good ethical high moral, high integrity clinicians are out and about tweeting and Facebooking and talking, et cetera, Mm -hmm. um, about what we do and helping people to see our faces and to get a feel for our personalities. And I will say that it's important that we, there is a discerning sort of, what makes sense questioning piece around mm-hmm. our job and the way that I practice. And I'm sure you do too, is for us to partner with our mm-hmm. patients to, mm-hmm. for us to be discerning together and figuring mm-hmm. things out together. What makes sense? What, what goes here? What doesn't go here, which in essence requires some judgment, but not shaming of our patient and their lives and their experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause that's one of the often things I also hear from um, whenever sometimes I do couples work is that the, one of the couple is not talking about what they're feeling because they're afraid of being judged or mm-hmm. someone's not being genuine and they're doing some sort of masking because they're afraid of being judged, which yeah, everyone, literally everyone's afraid of being judged. And the reality is we do judge because it's also necessary. What's missing, though, is whether or not you're doing discernment before the judgment. Yeah. If you're just leaping to the judgment, that's actually perpetuating the problem. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find you if they wanted to talk more with you and learn either either come work in one of your groups or support your cause? Well, the best way to begin contact with me is and um, either organization, Soul Centric Counseling, uh, where we have over 10 amazing clinicians who have a range of ethnic and racial backgrounds, speak a range of languages, um, Spanish, French, Hindu, ASL. Punjabi, Arabic, 
Um, we can be contacted through our website, soulcentriccounseling.com. And there's some social media that we've got as well. Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. And then for folks looking for groups, for clinicians or leaders um, who lead collective experiences, soul-centric collective is how to list uh, offerings for free. And so that could be ongoing groups or workshops, etc. And uh, there's ways to reach me through both of those platforms. All right. And we'll have a list of those links in the show notes. So check those out. So Carla, I want to thank you for taking this time on this uh, evening here on Friday and taking a moment to speak to us. Thank you. I'm so happy I had the opportunity. Thanks, Perry. Perfect. So you heard it here, folks. If you want to check out Soul Centric uh, Collective and check out these websites. Otherwise, this is our wrapping up episode for the month of February. So we'll be back to our usual programming from this point on uh, until we get to June, which we'll be doing this all again for uh, Pride Month. So take care, uh, stay warm, and we'll see you then. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.